0: Welcome, nerds from around the world. Grab yourself a tasty beverage, get comfy, and prepare to get your nerd on as we dive into the world of computing past, present, and future. Well, a little bit different this week, a little bit different this week, but this is Lunduke's Big Tech Show for April 30th, 2023. This is not going to be your regular show we're not going to take questions we're not going to get into the news of the day not none. no computer history no sir none of that we're going to deal with trying to solve as many of the computer problems that face the hardware and software world as humanly possible because we spend a lot of time here at the Lunduke Journal, and and generally every journalist in the tech world complaining. Complaining about problems over here and problems over there, security issues, software bloat, so many problems. But sometimes you need to sit down, buckle up, and say, okay, Nancy, it's time to actually try and solve some of these issues. So what we're going to do today is we're going to go through a huge laundry list of problems that exist in modern computing, everything from... Uh, a deluge of advertisements Across every website, application, and operating system we use The the influence of big tech on journalism The, the right to repair your own hardware The freedom to use your own software Software bloat uh, The dependency upon the internet for simple software usage The lack of original design in software So many more issues There's a huge number of issues My guess is you will agree with the vast majority of these being problems. Some of you are going to see some of these things as not that big of a deal, but most of you, most of you like me are going to look at these issues, these things that we deal with, ethical sourcing of computer hardware parts. I mean, there's so many issues in modern computing. We're going to try and tackle them one at a time. Now, obviously One little podcast, one little show does not solve the world's problems, does not solve all of these issues. But what we can do is attempt, at least attempt, to come up with ways that individually all of you can help make these problems impact you less. And I can come up with ways that we, as a group, can help influence the industry, to to steer it ever so slightly towards a better path. And I can come up with ways where the Lunduke Journal can set a good example, can actually practice what we preach, and try to veer the world of tech journalism in a more positive direction. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to do it during the whole show. No questions or nothing because we just don't got time for it. (laughs) I, this has been a long time in coming. We've needed to do this for a while. I've I've touched on so many of these topics, but we need to do it all at once. And we're going to start right at the top of my list with something that the Lunduk Journal can actually do something about. And I'm not going to spend much time on this, but we're going to talk about the big tech influence on tech journalism and the rampant proliferation... <laughs> Of advertisements across every single stinking news site, podcast, and YouTube tech channel from here to kingdom come. It's ridiculous. It is absolutely ridiculous how many advertisements are everywhere. And I've talked in the past about how that is utterly destroying tech journalism. Not only is it annoying... To have ads all over a web page. I mean, shoot, go to go to most tech news websites right now: ZDNet, Pharonics, and OMG Ubuntu. <laughs> any big little Mac rumors? Any big little indie professional tech site that deals with news, and you will find more advertisements on the page than actual articles, anything. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. So many of the tech news sites I go to on a daily basis as I'm scouring, looking for new news, looking for trends in the industry, and I'm wading through a sea of popover, rollover, and dynamic ads shuffling around my screen, slowly driving me to madness. So I'm taking a stand, And I mentioned this a little bit yesterday, but I'm taking a firm stand. Not only is the Lunduke Journal not going to have ads, we we haven't had ads forever. It's been two years or more since we've had a single advertisement by choice on any article or in any podcast. And we're going to keep that up. We're going to take things a step further. And we're going to say that no promotion of any kind, including self-promotion meaning I can't go out and create a a sale or or uh or do a a big flashy banner at the top of a podcast reminding people to subscribe none of that uh, other than in one day per month <laughs> yeah so when you come to the Lunduke Journal and you read articles, you listen to podcasts, you don't just get blasted in your face nonstop with with advertisements for sponsors for this podcast sponsored by but none of that garbage and no, and and only one day a month. Will you get the the whole rigmarole of of, you know, here you should be subscribing because it's super great and and, and give me money so that the lights can stay on and the website stays up, right? Like <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. Practicing what I preach. Now, do I think that me doing that at the Lunduke Journal is going to cause the entirety of the tech journalism world to, to do an about face, stop being completely and utterly reliant on dollars from big tech companies in order to run? No, I don't. But at least we can set an example that it's possible. And in the meantime, while we're setting that example, while we're showing all the other tech podcasts and YouTube channels and websites, that it's totally possible to decouple yourself, to unshackle those publications from the the leg irons of big tech. At the same time, it gives us a respite, a sanctuary, a place where it's not just blasted advertisements and, and promotions and whatnot, uh, in your face all day, every day. So there, there we go. That's one way that at least I can try and help, help do that. Um, we're going to, let's, let's move on to some of the other issues because I wanted to start with that one up front because that's something I could actually do something about (laughs) the ads on, on big tech websites, uh, and all that, uh, I can at least change my corner of the internet. I can do that. Um, now, as for advertisements embedded into Windows 11 and, and holy heavens, and the, the sheer number of crazy advertisements in, in iOS and Android apps, and uh, there's not much I can do about that. There's not much you, I, or anyone else can do to stop that other than to not use those particular pieces of software. That's the only choice we can make to veer ourselves clear of the the onslaught of advertisements embedded in software and that, that's all we can do that's all i can do or you can do they instead of running windows 11 we run uh linux or haiku or free bsd uh that's really or or mac os is, is a better option in that regard now now getting clear of the ios and android apps that are just filled with ads that's even easier because we just choose to not use those those applications if people stop using those applications so much those ad supported apps well then they'll switch to other models now if the application provides an option to pay for it and turn all the ads off i I think that probably makes sense to do because then it shows the the publisher that this is what we prefer just the same i i I can't stand the ad supported models I, I can't stand it. It drives me friggin nuts <laughs> um now on that on that note on that note, a related thing that is a growing concern is the freedom to use whatever software we want. Currently, that freedom is slowly being restricted. Apple has been pushing for a long time to to merge the, the iOS app ecosystem and use the same style on the macOS side of things with the Mac App Store as the iOS App Store, where everything you get will be from one closed siloed app store and it'll need to be digitally signed and and everything else thus creating additional artificial road blocks for publishers and developers to get applications onto users devices i mean ios applications are already really cannot be installed outside of the iphone the ios app store currently there are rumors that iOS 17 will allow the quote, side loading of applications, but those are really just rumors at this point. And there's a very real possibility that is only going to be possible in the European Union, <laughs> because that's that's where uh, that's where the laws are changing. And if that's uh, I, Apple doesn't want people outside of the European Union installing whatever application they want, however they want, that's crazy talk. They don't want you to use your computer as your computer and an iPhone and an Android device. I know a lot of you will disagree with me on this, but it's just a computer. It's a handheld computer. And on a computer, you should be able to install your friggin' software. I mean, I'll hold firm to that. That's just, that's just the way it should be. Luckily, Android is a little bit better in that regard at the moment but Google has been working for several years now to migrate to a new system where you cannot sideload applications, where you cannot install applications outside of their app store or outside of, I guess, uh, signed and, and authorized app stores. And that's a real problem. Realistically, if Apple and Microsoft thought they could get away with that on their desktop, it would already be done on the desktop operating systems. I think Apple's more likely to make it happen in the near term, Microsoft probably a lot less so, because they've done less work to make it happen, honestly. <laughs> Apple's pushed so hard with the Mac App Store that at this point, most applications that people get for a Macintosh come from the Mac App Store. So throwing the Switch and not allowing any application to be installed outside of their App Store, well, that's not that huge of a change for most Mac users. That's a, it's a, it's a, minor, a minor tweak. But Windows, Windows has got a little bit of a harder road there. But that, but that freedom is important. Luckily, on Android, there are things like F-Droid. And F-Droid allows you to have an app store that's filled with open source and free software that you can install. And that makes all the difference. If you're wanting to have an Android device where you can install whatever software you want, you've got F-Droid. And we can only hope that when iOS 17 rolls around that Apple does make good on supporting the idea of side-loading software in a reasonable way, you know, where publishers, developers, and users don't have to jump through too many hoops, and that they'll allow third-party app stores like F-Droid to appear, and even more so that they'll allow that functionality worldwide. That would go a long way towards making an iOS device, an iPhone or an iPad, A more powerful machine. Because right now you can't even run emulators on an iPhone. They disallow those. There's been some great ones. Was it iDOS? Which was a DOS box port for for iPhone. It was fantastic. It was great. Good performance. You can play good old DOS games on, on your iPhone. Apple yanked it out of the App Store because it was just way too much fun. And Apple cannot allow people to have that much fun. So here's hoping, fingers crossed, that in the coming months ahead, when Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference happens and we see iOS 17, we get that functionality. And here's hoping that that Google does not continue to push down the road of restricting the ability to sideload software. And here's hoping that Apple and Microsoft don't lock down their systems ever further. But if they do, I, I think it is... It is darn lucky that we have other options that we can jump to like Linux, FreeBSD, and some of the open source funky Google Android open source alternative ROMs that are out there combined with F-Droid. So that's that's darn lucky. All right, we got a whole lot more of these to go through. We got a ton of <laughs> a ton of problems in the industry that we need to solve still. So stick around, we'll be right back. I was working was Mr. McGee He told me several times that he didn't like my kind cause I was a bit too. Leisurely. as we as we ended the, that that last segment there, I, I was thinking to myself of all the all these problems with operating systems and and device manufacturers trying to lock, the ability to install software down, and I, I was I was realizing that as I was talking about it, I was in my mind giving in. I was as as the words were coming out of my mouth. I I said all, to all of us, "Thank heavens, at least we can go to other systems." But you know what? That's just giving in. And yes, going to other systems is great. I'm I'm obviously, I'm a huge fan of Linux. Uh, Multiple BSDs are pretty darn fantastic. Haiku, there's a ton of great operating systems out there. There's a lot of places for us to go and to give our support. But I think that there's beyond just using and actively supporting and championing the types of systems that truly respect our rights as computer users to install the software we darn well want, there is one other thing that we can be doing. And that is making it really clear, loud and clear, to the companies who are seeking to restrict our rights as users that we will not tolerate it it's not just that we're going to vote with our feet and vote with our dollars and go elsewhere which is important which is critical it is critical to say to Google, you know what? I am absolutely not going to be using standard Android anymore. I'm going to go to one of the the Android open source project ROMs that are completely that, that strip out all the Google Play services and the app store and I'm going to specifically deprive you of revenue in that way. And that's important because that that sends a clear signal one that companies who rely on making money here But we also need to speak up and speak loudly to these companies. We need to tell them just directly, not in a necessarily even a hostile way, but in an I'm not going to put up with this garbage way to say to Apple, we will not do this. I have an iPhone XR in front of me. It's fine. I mean, I I don't love it. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I don't love it. It was kind of bought in for me as half of a joke, um, but it does have a nice camera and um, it, some of the features are pretty nice, but a lot of the things about it I hate, like the lockdown nature of it. And I, I, I will say loud and clear to Apple And I need to say this via as many avenues as I can, podcasts, articles, social media, direct emails to their press departments, to their customer support, that I will not buy more of their hardware if they continue to treat me like a second class citizen. Like I am unworthy of using the hardware that I've purchased, that I simply will not tolerate being treated that way. And if they wish to continue having me around as a customer, paying for apps in their app store, paying for their online services, buying upgrades to their hardware, they need to treat me like a human being. And they need to allow me to install software however I gosh darn well want. They can either enable that feature, which is artificially locked down, And unnecessarily restricted. Or I go elsewhere with my next phone purchase. Because honestly, this this iPhone XR I've got is getting long in the tooth. Not that it's not plenty beefy and powerful, but that every OS update and upgrade makes it just psychotically slower. (laughs) But that's another issue that we'll gripe about a little bit later on, I'm suspecting. All right. um, Let's move. Let's move into hardware for a minute. Let's talk about right to repair. Obviously, this is a big issue that many people have been tackling in the in the tech industry. Lewis Rossman has done a great job of of championing the right to repair your rights as a person who buys hardware to repair them. And there are fortunately direct things that we can do in this regard right now there are no great in my opinion options for buying computers that are easy to repair but there are some decent ones and i feel like those are the ones that we need to be putting our purchasing dollars towards uh framework is an excellent example uh their framework laptops they have been going at it hard of making their their systems modular and somewhat repairable with with swappable components not perfect um and and i think i think most of the right to repair people out there will admit right off the bat that they are not perfect there's some issues there however it is kind of the best we've got most of the other laptop manufacturers out there every piece and component is glued on with blobs of stuff covering up chips and and the ram is soldered onto the motherboard and you can't you can't change or fix anything it's awful you can't even change the battery for criminy's sake so what, what, I, what I propose out there, and this is what I, I personally am doing because I think this is important, is if I need to buy new computer hardware, I give myself two options. One, I buy from a company like Framework that is providing at least an attempt to provide modular, repairable, or upgradable computer hardware. I either buy from one of those companies or I only buy used hardware that where I am not giving the company that makes it money directly. Those are the two options I'm giving myself Um, because used buying used hardware solves a few other issues, um, which I want to get into in a moment. But uh, those are really the only options here. Now, obviously, we can speak out and talk to companies like Dell and Apple and Microsoft and Google and so many others and say, what in the hell are you guys doing? Soldering in and making non-removable batteries? What kind of nonsense garbage is this? Like, I'm not asking for the world. I love how modular the framework laptops are, where the new the new one that's coming out, you can even swap out the GPU and everything. The I.O. ports are swappable. Brilliant. But I'm not even asking for that. I'm asking for, like, the simplest level of repairability and modularness. As in, I can change my battery. That's it. That's all I'm asking for. And... Companies like Apple have been leading the way in locking people down in such a way that they can't even remove batteries. It's not even a matter of can I repair it. I'm not even allowed to change my battery. That's nonsense. That's utter poppycock. That's insanity, especially considering where the industry was in the 1990s. In the 1990s, Apple made laptops with hot, swappable, multiple battery bays that just shot out and were spring-loaded and awesome. Apple used to sell battery-charging kits. So you could have two batteries in your Apple PowerBook, and you could have a four-station, a four-battery-charging station that you could buy from them for your PowerBook G3s, and you could just line your batteries all up. And you could have them charging in addition to the batteries that were in your laptop. It was amazing. They understood that. They used to make it so it was easy to swap in and out your wireless card, your RAM, all of it. Nowadays, the RAM is soldered and glued onto the board. You can't even change it. Insane. Insane. So, what do we do? One, we speak out like we're doing today we speak out on social media if you use it you speak out to in, to directly to their company to their tech support to their customer support to their sales reps and to their press department i'm going to let you guys in on a little secret you want to affect change in a company contact their press department not a joke so uh, if their press team is getting inundated with emails about how awful it is that Apple is treating their customers like human garbage by not even allowing them to replace batteries? That you wish that Apple would be more like Apple used to be when it was a good company that liked human beings? If if the press team keeps hearing those things, oh, you better bet changes are going to happen in that company. I'm going to tell you right now. <laughs> you people talk surveys, uh, um, uh, petitions are great. Social media campaigns are great uh, because they, they do, they do influence companies. There's no doubt about it. Uh, emails to customer support and tech support sometimes help a little bit, but let's be honest, customer support and tech support, they don't have the power. And for the most part, they're just annoyed that they had to answer the phone. Let's be honest. You contact the press people. Those are the people that have to put together the marketing campaigns, that have to put together the the press releases and interact with the journalists. If that's what they're hearing all the time, that goes back to the CEO, the CMOs, and the CTOs directly. Changes will occur. So email those press people. It's usually press at Whatever the company name is, company domain is, just as a little hint. If you can't find their press contact on their website, just try emailing press at com. Nine out of 10 times it'll get right to them. And we need to be nice about it when we're doing that sort of thing, but we need to tell them. They need to know. As a company, companies need to know when their, their p- current or potential or both customers are unhappy with the way they're going so that they can make the change. So I'm telling Apple loud and clear, I have emailed Apple repeatedly, multiple people, including some of their executives directly, letting them know, if they want me to not talk badly about Apple and to buy future Apple products, here's what they've got to do. They need to act like they used to act. Not asking for the moon, asking for removable batteries. Pretty doggone simple. More than that would be nice, but let's just start with removable batteries. In the meantime, Framework is a good option for laptops. For desktops, System 76 is not a bad option, not perfect. But their Thelio line of, of desktops is pretty user serviceable and repairable, and uh, they they say that they're working on on a line of of custom built laptops. We can only hope, fingers crossed, that they go modular just like Framework did, because there's not a lot of other options right now. And so we've got to we've got to focus on the options that we've got. Now I mentioned I mentioned previously uh, just a little bit ago about ethical hardware sourcing. And this kind of all ties into this. What do I mean by that? So when you go out and buy a laptop, an iPhone, a tablet right now, more often than not, those were built in some pretty shady ways. Those were built in, uh, in a, lot, a lot of them are built in China. A lot of them are built in sweatshops. A lot of the raw materials are mined by children um, or in war-torn areas uh, by people who are essentially slaves. Uh, it, is, it is awful. It is truly, truly horrific. So how do we deal with that? Again, we speak to the companies directly. We let them know that this is a problem. We let them know that we would like to see more of the engineering, manufacturing, sourcing of raw materials even done in our own countries, whether that's the United States of America, Canada, parts of the European Union, wherever, right? Places where we can we can verify, we can verify that people are not being treated as slaves, that these hardware pieces are being built in an ethical manner. And if we can't do that, if we can't get verification that that is happening, we buy used hardware. Now, that isn't as big of a deal as it once was, because realistically, if if you look at the speed of hardware from five years ago, it's pretty close to the speed of hardware now, <laughs> so buying used hardware, it it, it doesn't re, repurchase more from uh, from the companies that are doing some shady things and building their hardware in some shady ways. And at the very least, it keeps the money a little bit more out of their pockets, not completely, but a little bit more. So buying the buying used hardware, they notice that Dell. Apple, Microsoft, Google, they all notice that. They when when their sales drop and they see the 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 market for used hardware of theirs going up and new hardware going down, they make changes. They make changes. All right, all right. We we got more. We got more. Stick around. Well, we're moving on up to the east side. To our deluxe apartment in the sky. Well, we're moving on to the east side. Mm, we finally got a piece of the pie. One thing I want to I wanna touch on quickly uh, about what we were just talking about relating to computer hardware, and then we'll move on to some other, uh, other potential items, is local hardware production. It, we 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 touched on that briefly because it's it having your hardware produced in, lar- in large part or even completely in your own country or in countries that you your country has a good relationship with means you can verify that it was done ethically you know without slave labor and the like. But more than that, it also it also provides some security benefits if your hardware your chips and whatnot are all produced, say, in your home state, in your home country, you can can go to those factories. You can tour them. Those companies are bound by whatever laws and regulations are in place where you live. And so you can have a certain level of expectations that, say, another foreign country isn't going to be putting, say, spying technology into some of those chips, which is absolutely a thing that happens. And so I I like to look around for computers that are made in the USA, not because uh, USA is the best country on earth, it is, <laughs> but because that's where I live, right? And so I I look around for that a great deal. And you'd think that would be a pretty straightforward and easy thing to do considering, the vast majority of the computing advancements of the 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 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s happened right here in the United States. We, I, I know a lot of people in a lot of other countries are going to be going, wait a minute, wait a minute, there are things happening in Germany, in the UK, and in Japan. Yes, 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 I know. I've talked about all those things. However... There's no getting around the fact that so much of of ground zero for computing was really in the United States. Oddly enough, a lot of people don't think about it like this, but New Mexico, Texas, uh, a lot of portions of the United States Southwest were very important and critical in the computing industry, in in early semiconductors, Texas instruments, all, all, all of it. And so you'd think... With that sort of a massive legacy of, of the vast majority of the major computing companies in the world, both past and present, being headquartered in the United States, that you could get made-in-the-USA equipment fairly easily. Unfortunately, it's all but impossible. Getting a couple of chips here and there that are made in the USA, totally doable. It is absolutely doable. Uh, There are still fabrication facilities uh, making chips, both old and new, legacy and current, throughout the United States. However, the -the made-in-the-USA requirements for being able to say, this phone, this computer was made in the USA, are really relaxed. Example, a company that I used to run marketing for called Purism. I was the director of marketing for this company. They make laptops and phones and smartphones that are preloaded with Linux. Very free software friendly. The company does a lot of great things in that regard. No doubt about it. But they also make something that they call the Librem 5 USA edition. Now the Librem 5 is their custom designed smartphone that runs Linux, which is something that I love the made in the USA edition is not really made in the USA. They can say it's made in the USA because it meets a certain level of requirements of the final parts being assembled together in the USA. But when you ask them, if you and you can do this, you can go to Purism on online on Twitter, or email them and say, Hey, could you give me a parts list? If this is a made in the USA phone and it's fully open source and I'm allowed to open this thing up and look at it, can I get a parts list telling me where these chips came from? They will not give it to you. I have asked repeatedly since I left the company. And they, even me, who ran their marketing, they will not tell me where those chips come from. And I know full well that a large portion of those chips and those boards are not made in the United States. So, if you want to get a made-in-your-locale piece of computer hardware, you are pretty much out of luck. In fact, one of the last machines I was I was doing some some investigating into this. And if you want to get a made in America computer, there were some 486 laptops made by Epson uh in the 90s that were more or less fully made in America. RAM, processors, case, the the molded cases, the boards, all of it. Uh, there might have been one or two little parts here and there but by and large the whole units were made in America um and if you go back to the 1980s there were a lot of computers that were made in America and Canada together um uh the uh, the Apple 2s for example the Apple 2s were mostly made from American parts their power supplies if memory served for a lot of the units that shipped came from Canada um but most of the parts were the USA parts so early computer history you can get made in the USA or or even just made in Europe machines much easier nowadays uh, go forward to the 90s you could get a few nowadays it's almost impossible and the, the ones that are labeled made in the USA are really really not it's kind of a lie <laughs> i mean it's i the i appreciate machines being assembled together you know, in your locale, a great deal, even if the parts come from other parts of the, of the world. I I appreciate that, but it feels like it's a bit deceptive to say like the Libram five USA edition is made in the USA. When I know that most of those parts, as far as I know, I don't even know if, I don't even know if most of those parts come from the USA. I I know, I know a lot of them definitely don't, but you can't get them to give you a, a real parts list of the, where they come from. It's, it's ridiculous. All right, let's move on to surveillance and privacy issues, because this is one area that, while daunting, we can actually do a great deal about. You know, we, it's not just that we complain and then buy old gear. <laughs> we can actually do a fair bit about the surveillance and privacy related issues. The big one out there, the big one and for all of us is our phones, right? And that's an obvious one. Right, everyone knows their smartphone is spying on them. Snowden showed us that to an extreme, we know that for sure. However, there are some ways to drastically reduce the amount of surveillance being done on you and increase your privacy while still living in the modern age. It's very, very doable. Uh, step one. Evaluate the systems that are out there. Now, right now, I did a test on this many years back, probably four four or five years ago, where I put an Android phone and an iOS device right next to each other, not moving, and measured the network traffic on each. Right? So I saw how much data was being sent out and to what domains and how often. And what I found was the 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 Android device was constantly phoning home. And not just a, a ping to an update server or something. It was sending map data, location data, all sorts of stuff constantly. It was an onslaught of data. So if you have a stock Android device, you can rest assured that you are being surveilled, your location, what you are doing, what software you are running, the searches you have made through Google, YouTube, etc., what you have typed, because it's a predictive keyboard that logs and tracks all everything you type, what you speak, and a lot of times even what you say and what you are looking at is all being tracked, tagged, recorded, cross-indexed, and stored away. You can count on it, right? iOS is a little bit better. Yes, that data is being recorded too. However, it phones home far less. Far less. I mean, it's a fraction of the amount of total data and a fraction as often gets sent home as on an Android device. That's just that's just recorded fact. It's just the truth. Now, the reality is both of these systems are locked down and closed source. We have no way of really accurately auditing all the details here. But we know so enough data is sent home from both iOS and Android devices to accurately know where you are, what you're doing, And quite possibly where you're going, who you're talking to, what you're looking at right now. That's a lot of data. That's a heck of a lot of data. To give you an example here, just to give you an example of how much data that is. If you have, if all you have is your current location and what you have currently searched for in a weather app, you can judge with relative certainty what you're about to do next. For example, let's say that you are in San Francisco, California and you were downtown San Francisco. Well, we know that your data, we show the data shows that you're moving on the freeway in San Francisco, California, and you just did a weather search for Chicago, Illinois. And and based on the data, the track that you're following on Google Maps, you're heading towards San Francisco International Airport. Now, all we know is what you search for on weather and your location. But we can judge with pretty high levels of certainty that you might be about to take a trip to Chicago on an airplane at a specific time. That's a heck of a lot of information about what you are doing in your private affairs gleaned from an incredibly small amount of data, a drop in the bucket compared to the total amount of data that is sent back to Google and Apple every single day about every single one of us. So what do we do? Step one. Yes, yes. We tell them we don't like it. But step two, and this is the big important thing because we need to take matters into our own hands sometimes, is to not buy an iPhone. Because you can't do anything with it. You can't you can't hack it. Not, not very well anyway. And you can't put something on it that's going to respect your freedom in a reasonable way. So forget the iPhone. Put it off to the side. Sorry, Mac lovers and iPhone lovers. You just got to put it off to the side if you actually care about surveillance and your own personal privacy. If you don't care about this, use your iPhone. But what you need to do is get yourself... Either one of the Linux-powered phones, like the PinePhone or the Librem 5, which have problems. Admittedly, they're not great in a lot of ways. Or you get yourself one of the phones that is easy to flash an Android open source ROM onto. There's a whole lot of them out there. And I should probably do a whole article series on some of the options that are available. Um, I used to use one called Copperhead, which doesn't exist anymore, but, um, it was, it was fantastic. But basically people can take the core of the Android operating system, which is open source, strip out everything that is proprietary the google play store google play services all of it there's no google maps there's none of those things and strip it down to the point where it's not phoning home ever and then you put things like f droid which is we talked about earlier which is a an android app app store competitor essentially that just has open source and free software on it and you focus on applications that are open source and verified to be a bit more secure. There's a great deal of messaging applications out there that do encrypted end-to-end messaging, uh, open source camera applications, the works. So you can have, including web browsers, open source web browsers that are not Google, that are not Apple. And you can have, while not a perfect surveillance-free and privacy-respecting machine... Nearly infinitely better, because the amount of data being collected by a stock Android device is astronomical. But if you go with, say, uh, you know, what, one of one of the, like a like a Fairphone or something like that with an Android open source project, an AOSP ROM put on there that's focused on privacy, you can do much better. Now that means, at least to a certain degree giving up a lot of the convenience of using things like the Google Play Store. But if you're willing to do that, you can gain back, you can buy back a huge amount of personal privacy and personal freedom. And it's kind of hard to put a price on that. And the more people that do that, and the more people that opt out of things like the Google Play Store... And the more people that stop using iPhones, because even though they do send less data back than a stock Android device, you can't really fix them. The more people that do that, the that, that sends a monetary message to the companies that we want privacy respecting hardware and software, and we're willing to jump through hoops to get it, and we're we're willing to give money to people, but not to you. All right, all right, all right, all right we, got, we got more. Stick around. Back in the days of the time I was raised, we were Paul for sure. But the glory of it was didn't know it. I wasn't afraid to show it. Still, I couldn't refuse to chase a cold. In fact, the same at the time I was eight, I was yelled for sure. And the story of it was I would rise above it. But now I slept through your news when I couldn't lose. And you're confused because I'm shrinking. One of the things that really concerns me about our modern computing environment is our absolute dependency and growing dependency on the big tech companies and being connected to them at all times. Having that constant internet connection to those tech services is becoming a vital part of the sheer concept of computing. And it, it wasn't always this way. In fact, it was almost never this way. While connectivity and the ability to to connect to other services, to connect uh, thin clients to, to servers and and everything else and communicate with people around the world was always a goal and always something we did and always something we enjoyed doing with our computers from the almost the beginning, almost the very beginning. The absolute dependence on it and the assumption that you just can't be computing without it, that's become a problem. And it's not just things like um, connecting to an update server. Because if that's all it was, if if the only issue with computing nowadays is that in order to get updates, we needed to connect to a server, I would have less of a problem with that. I would still prefer it if I could get updates on physical medium and install them on my uh, on my myself in a little bit of a more offline way. It's kind of doable on some systems nowadays, but other systems make it all but impossible. If that's all it was, I wouldn't be so concerned. But it goes so much further than that. Uh, just just as a few examples, most people when they sit down to use their computer are mostly using internet-related stuff, right? Web browsers, stuff running inside of a web browser, applications that are essentially web browsers. So many electron-type apps out there. Um, Connecting to social media, websites, publishing platforms, etc. And I get it. That includes me. But so much of that is not doable offline so much of that that it, it it means that there's several problems that occur the first problem is what happens when your internet connection goes away and that's not a hypothetical that's a, it's a real real issue that that occurs constantly both in terms of of simple local internet outages they happen uh, people cut a line somewhere and then the whole eastern seaboard goes down it happens and then you don't have access to the internet anymore at least for a while. What happens when the power goes down and the internet modem stops working? What happens when the companies running those servers are no longer in existence? I mean, no company lasts forever. And no company that lasts a long time keeps their same servers up and running. How many companies had servers and websites and online services that have since been shelved? Google does it as a hobby. They literally create services just to, just to turn the servers off. It happens constantly. The majority of all services, servers that have ever run are no longer online. And and if you want to challenge me on that, I dare you to go, go back and look at all the services that used to exist. I mean, shoot, even just the chat services, most of them are gone. While there's plenty of nowadays, most of the old ones are gone. File hosting services, most of them gone. GeoCities is friggin' gone. They're all gone. Which means you cannot rely on that stuff. You cannot rely on those servers. They can't rely on the information that's hosted on them to be there. Right now, we're looking at the possibility of the whole Internet Archive going away. Because the Internet Archive made a couple of really stupid rookie legal mistakes. And because of that, gosh, they were dumb. Uh, And I love the Internet Archive, but boy, did they make mistakes. And because they made those mistakes, they're getting sued potentially into oblivion, and the whole Internet Archive might go away. It's a great resource. Huge archives of, of past websites and, and classic software and, and audio recordings from the, from the from the earliest wax cylinders. It's amazing. It's possibly going to go away. We don't know for sure, but it's kind of looking that way. None of this stuff is likely to continue. And this constant connection has also meant the proliferation of, of being connected to AI systems like Cortana and Siri and Bing and all the other ones and to social media. And all of those systems are custom designed to manipulate us. Now, that's not a theory. They're designed that way. If you've ever worked at the companies that build social media sites or those artificial intelligence voice assistants or any of those sorts of things, you know that the the big goal is not just to help us be productive. If they can do that, that's great. But a very core design goal of all of these systems is to purposefully manipulate people. The algorithm. You hear about the algorithm regularly. From YouTube to Twitter to Facebook, heck, to Google to all of it. The algorithm. It's always there. And the algorithm really is just code for a whole lot of different pieces of software, custom designed to manipulate you, to try and get you to click certain things, to do certain things, to enact certain tasks, to make certain purchases, to manipulate us. That's what it's there for. It's there to make money by manipulating us. And that constant connection, the fact that we have accepted a constant connection only makes that worse because it it emboldens the companies to do more of that. And we're seeing exactly that nowadays. So what do we do about that? Step one, make as much of our content available in a completely offline way as possible. That's step one, because as long as our content is only available Online through specific sets of closed services, we are at their mercy. They could go away tomorrow, our data is gone. They could decide to change their terms of service and we could be locked out. They could start to manipulate us in ways that we do not like and we might not be able to do anything about it because we wanted to keep access to our back catalog of content. So, step one is to make as much of our content available. In downloadable, archivable, non-connected ways as possible. And this, this 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 goes for everything from videos to chats to emails to uh, uh, to articles. So for example, for example, email. do you use email? Of course you do. We all use email. Make sure you have a desktop email client. That downloads local copies of all of your email that you can use and search without an internet connection. It is critical because web mail systems go away or change their service or become inaccessible. That doesn't mean you don't have to use it you, you, you doesn't mean you can't use Webmail. I use Webmail almost every day, but I also make sure I have a desktop client that archives. Nice little poop pop action grabs all of that email and keeps it local, backed up, secure, safe. If the terms of service of the email's provider change, if your if your internet connection goes down, if that company goes out of business, you don't lose all your email. Critical. Uh, for me, what does that mean in practice for like the Lunduke journal? That means I, every month I archive all of my articles as a downloadable PDF. And, and a lot of, most people do not read the Lunduke journal through the PDF file. They could, they could read every article. It's all there in the PDF files. They usually go to the website, right? Because, it's, because then it's the latest, They, they ju- it just got up updated, just got published, so go read the latest and greatest article. I get it. But the fact that the PDF is there means that you can grab it, archive it, read it on any computer you want, any device you own, uh, back it up for posterity. And you know what? I do it as much for me as I do it for all of you. Because... If I'm publishing all these articles, I publish sometimes a hundred or more pages of articles every month. It's insane. (laughs) And I've been doing this for quite some time now. That's a lot of words. And some of those articles are good. (laughs) Some of them are actually worth reading. So I want to keep those. Well, what happens I publish them currently to Substack and occasionally to locals? What happens if Substack and locals go away? What happens if Substack and locals decide they don't like me and they kick me off? What happens if they change the terms of service? What happens if they make it hard for me to get? What happens if a nuclear bomb goes off in the Substack data center? Someone detonates an EMP in the sky above Substack headquarters. What do I do then? Did I just lose a thousand pages of tech history? No, because I made the PDF files. I put them up there for everyone to download, DRM free, and I put them on my own machines and I backed them up to my own servers and onto my local physical media. So I have the data that's precious to me, or some of it at least. Local, backed up, not connected to the internet. This is a critical thing. It's an absolutely critical bit of, of being not at the mercy of those big tech, always connected machines. It's critical. It's, it's oh, 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 oh man, oh, oh man. Now, as for social media and the manipulation and all that that causes, we I, I covered this somewhat recently someone had had emailed in or sent a message in talking about the problems with addiction and social media and and so my my suggestions were to find ways to you know kind of wean yourself or to limit social media um but in the in the from the point of view of what we're talking about here of not being manipulated by the social media that same advice applies if you can limit the amount of time that you spend on social media and include limiting the amount of uh, surfaces by which you use social media. And by that, I mean, have one machine that you use, say, Twitter on. Right. One desktop computer, one laptop, and you only use it for half hour a day. You sit down at it and you use it. Fine. And then you done, you log off, you walk away from it. You don't go back to it because those sorts of online services can be very useful. Uh, People use Facebook to stay in contact with family. People use Twitter, honestly, to get news nowadays. And uh, I don't blame them. I do sometimes too both tech news and political geopolitical news. Sometimes those social media sites can be very useful. So you don't have to cut them out of your lives entirely. But if you if you restrict them and you limit their access to you, then you are limiting the amount of manipulation that that company can enact upon you. And I think that that can only be a good thing the The less ability that companies have to control your movements, your actions, your clicks, your likes, your comments, your thought patterns, the better. Because they're not in your best interest; they never are. They're in the company's best interest. If you're lucky, your interests and the company's interests will align. But it's you're not always lucky. I I would dare say more often than not, you're not going to be lucky in that regard um okay all right all right uh we got we got a couple more things we're going to hit upon uh and then we'll wrap this sucker up holy moly lightning round fixing all the problems uh, a little bit more coming up oh sidewalk landed on my face and I thought what a way to go after all I've seen mm-hmm, I can't just press on no. I've become a zombie me now I slide down the street with- one thing one thing that I wanted to touch on with the whole manipulation by tech companies thing is the expansion and proliferation of artificial intelligence. We're seeing it all over the place. People are adopting it for a wide variety of uses, for coding, for doing Internet searches, for creating, creating little bits of text for things, uh, for creating whole articles, all sorts of stuff. I am not a fan we, we're we not going to get into today whether or not artificial intelligence as it currently stands with the form of chat GPT and Bing and and Google's weirdo thing that they're creating is good or bad. I obviously don't think it's a good thing. I think it's a horrible thing. I think it's a, a potentially very catastrophic thing. I see very little good coming out of it. However, however, I recognize that a bunch of you like it. <laughs> So we're, today we're not going to be trying to convince you that it's horrible. I will simply say this. What is the option if you think that the AI stuff is bad? <clears throat> what is your option? What do we, those of us who are concerned legitimately about the use and overuse of artificial intelligence, what do we do? There is one very specific, very key thing to do. Don't use it. Pure and simple. Real easy, cut and dried. Um, Like me, for example, I say I don't use it in my personal life and I refuse to, and I make a very public stance on it. I refuse to use it for the Lunduk Journal in any way, which is unlike almost every tech publication out there. They're all, they're all jumping on the chat GPT and, and other AI tools bandwagon. Uh, It's, it's getting, it's getting ridiculous. (laughs) but I'm saying no. And that's, that's, that's what we can do. That's the biggest thing we can do is say, no, don't, don't give them money. Don't give them traffic and say, no, this is a bad idea. This is poorly thought out. No, thank you. (laughs) That's the best thing I feel like we can do. Um, and then when there's, when there's services in our operating systems and in our softwares that want to connect to it, when they're building in AI tools that connect up to a centralized server, that is running an AI that is built to manipulate us. We disable them and we block them. We block the connections. We we put it. We build in uh, blacklists and uh, block those IP addresses and just don't allow connections to those servers. That's what we do. We just say nope. I'm not gonna. I am not gonna take part in that. All right. Uh, I want to get uh, get into one final topic here that is one that is a very near and dear to my heart and that is software quality and two from two points of view specifically one software bloat and software just simply ballooning in size and out of control and two the lack of originality in software so if you go back in time To the 1980s and even into the the 90s and especially early 90s, you find tons of software companies, big and small, trying to make their software faster on existing hardware that was always a big thing make existing hardware do more Uh, we saw amazing amazing things come out where people got whole unix like environments massive preemptive multitasking systems running on 286s it was amazing amazing We saw amazing feats of truly original software, truly original designs, look and feel and functionality where people were breaking new ground, producing software that wasn't just light, fast, svelte, beautiful, but was interesting and different and totally went in totally new, wild ways, wild directions in terms of look and feel workflow, and sometimes even the core functionality itself. Flash forward to nowadays, look at all of the major operating systems, ones that used to look wildly different Mac and windows and Unix machines But man, especially look at those Mac and Windows machines. Current Mac, put it right next to a Windows 11 box. Put it right next to a modern version of KDE running on Linux. You know what? They don't look that different. It used to be they did look different. They acted differently. They had different features. They had different different strengths and weaknesses. They looked and felt different. Nowadays, they all have this kind of flat, semi-translucent, blurry glass feel to them. They all do. They lack originality. They simply do. And it's not every piece of software out there that's like that. Not every piece of software has this ridiculous... (sighs) See, I'm allergic to it. I'm allergic to the lack of originality. But not every piece of software has that, that foggy glass, flat, <laughs> same basic looking, same color scheme UI as those big ones do. Not every system is ballooning out of control and becoming a giant bloated corpse of an operating system or a giant bloated corpse of a piece of software. But oh my gosh, how many gigs does Windows 11 take up? How many gigs does Mac OS, whatever we're on, Mac OS, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, whatever we're on right now, I don't even know. Do they even know what number they're on anymore? They just come up with brand new names for it that no one cares about. I have feelings, it turns out. It turns out I have some feelings on the matter. But not every piece of software is like that. When you look out there, there are desktop environments that are still in existence that are lightweight. You can still get CDE or NSCDE. You can still get XFCE. You can still get Mate, which is essentially GNOME 2. You can get Haiku. You can get so many lightweight operating systems, open BSD and the like, systems that are light, that are configurable, that look, feel, and act differently, that are not bloated to the extreme. So what do we do? What do you do, son? We use and we support and we advocate for the systems that are lightweight and original, the systems that are pushing the barrier of what can be accomplished on current hardware. Not looking ahead to thinking, "Oh, gee, won't it be great when we get some brand new th- processor ten years from now and 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 that'll it'll finally run our current OS fast enough?" No, 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 no. What systems are working towards running at grease lightning speed now and then thinking, you know what? I want it to run on the same hardware next year, but 10% faster, right? That's the systems I want to be supporting. And those systems do exist. Again, Haiku, Serenity, Morphos seriously uh and eros they are they're out there constantly improving on the exact same hardware running on old amiga hardware and the like pushing the limits of what's possible from that point of view the existing amiga os is still getting updates it's totally different and it's still getting updates for the original hardware serenity is still kind of not having great hardware support, but it's doing better and better all the time. Haiku is really usable on bare metal hardware if you, you know, if you make sure you got the right kind of compatible hardware, but it's fast. It looks different. It works different. The lack of originality and the massive software bloat in modern software is, in my opinion, a sign of extreme laziness. And a lack of nerdiness. Because if you're a real nerd and you really care about computers a lot, you would not make Windows 11. You would not take what was a really interesting system in macOS and turn it into whatever the current version of macOS is. You would not do that. Sorry. Sorry. You wouldn't. I know there's a lot of people out there who are like, I like Windows 11. Hey, a lot of people out there, they love their current Mac OS Ace Ventura. I get it. There's reasons to like those systems. But if you're building them, that's not the way you would have gone. It wouldn't have the designs that they currently have. It would not be perpetually getting more and more bloated. You would put it to, you would sit down and be like, come on, team. We're going to spend six months and we're going to make this thing scream because you would love it and you'd want it to be that much better. So, what do we do as end users? Again, yes, yes, we tell the companies that we want their software to stop getting slower with every release. That we want their software to support the hardware for longer than they do, which is currently a ridiculously short life cycle. Uh, here's looking at you, Microsoft, Apple, Canonical, a whole bunch of others. Um, but on top of that, we want them to do something interesting. Because if you really look back over it, look at the things, the features that Apple put into Mac OS 9 and the early Mac OS 10s or Copeland. Oh, don't get me started on Copeland, the fabled Mac OS 8 that never came, never got released. Those systems are are substantially more original and interesting than the current Mac OS that is out there right now. Look at Windows 11 and compare Windows 11 to Windows 95. Windows 95, I'm going to put this out there, is a significantly more original, streamlined, and interesting piece of software than Windows 11 is. Windows 11 is about 87 infinities larger than Windows 95 and crazy slower and sure it has some pretty neat features on it. Just like the current Mac OS does. But the lack of originality and the extreme software bloat, I'm done with it. So what does that mean? So we have two options. We either use the exist the current systems that buck that trend Open and NetBSD Haiku. Serenity OS, even heck Amiga OS, it's still being developed. There's options out there or we use older operating systems and we say, you know what? I don't need Windows 11. I'm going to use Windows XP. (laughs) I'm going to stick with Windows 2000 or Windows XP until you pry it away from my cold, dead hands. I'm or or we just or we just use Linux and 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 try our best to pretend like it's not getting bloated. <laughs> oh, but that's those are our options. Now, for me, for me, I'm I'm eyeballing some of the modern systems that are being a bit more uh svelte and streamlined. I'm really Haiku. I'm really looking at Haiku and thinking this is this is there for me. This is there for me now. I can now do a hundred percent of my normal work except for video production stuff on haiku i just can it's great uh and it's a lightweight interesting and original system it's 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 interesting it's actually feels like it's being built by people who care about computing software and there's a lot of options out there there's a lot of options out there and the key is not to just run away from Windows and Mac. That's not the key. The key is to make things better. So hopefully, in the process of going and using other things and speaking out and saying, Apple, Microsoft, Canonical even, wake up. Get interesting. Hire people that care about computing and computer software. Hire the nerds that made your companies once pretty fantastic. Because let's be honest, Apple and Microsoft, for all of their faults, have done some amazing things in the past. And they could do so again if they stopped spending all of their time trying to lock users down, not let users install software, and create really weird AI engines to tell you creepy, creepy things all the time. (laughs) You know what I mean? So there we go. There we go. We just went through a whole mess of problems and at least we have some idea of how to remedy some of them or at least for ourselves to make them a little bit better of what we can run, what we can install, how we can how we can control our own data just a little bit better while at the same time trying to tell these companies that they need to stop the the problems that they're creating. And it's a pretty big laundry list. And you know what? I guarantee you almost every one of you listening right now has an item on your list of things that are going not so great in computing that I didn't even touch on because I had to, I had to cut myself short. Otherwise we could go on forever. But I'm hoping that some of you out there listen to this and thought of at least one way that you can make your personal computing experience a little more enjoyable, a little more secure, a little more private, maybe a little less surveillance, maybe a little less dependency on social media. Maybe it just be filled a little less ads, maybe a little less dependent on that one online service where all of your data is stored 24 seven. Just maybe. Just maybe. All right, everybody. What brings us about to the end of this week's show? Thanks for hanging out with me. Next week's going to be a more regular show. Now that I've gotten all this off my chest and we've gone through all of this. Next week, we're getting back to a regular show. We'll take your listener questions. We got some news coming in. Maybe one or two little special surprises. So come back next week. Hang out. Have a great week. Do something super duper nerdy because you deserve it. And with that, I do declare... (laughs) End broadcast Walked in the room, we thought he was surrounded. He fought we hit the ground and got up again. He brought the boom and now we're getting slaughtered. Forget the bosses always to take him in. He's mystifying, fist flying. looking out fools like he's not even trying. Case lying, justifying. Then a second I'm when I'm the next one dying. We take him one at a time. Why are we waiting in